We're in Acts 15. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 15. Bible's in the back if you need one. If you don't have one, keep it. We're studying the book of Acts together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I read from the, what's called the ESV, English Standard Version. If you have a New American Standard, it's kind of somewhat close, similar. The NIV will be a little different. Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at Acts chapter 15 uh, for the next two weeks. I decided to look at it rather than jump in and try to deal with all the issues in Acts chapter 15 in one Sunday. We'll do it in two Sundays. As you know, Acts has 28 chapters in the book, and therefore 15 is just about the center of the book. Chapters 1 through 14 have 519 verses, for those like, well, 15 is not, uh, and then 15 through 28 has 487 verses, so very close, uh, but it's not only the, the center of the book, it's also, it's also the center of the book strategically, um, structurally, thematically, theologically. It, it is the pivotal point, it is the watershed event, and it will change the life of the church, the way the church views and sees the gospel for, for, the, for the rest of church history, even today. Up to now, we saw that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw this unfolding life in the church of Jesus' command to wait in Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 8, to wait in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit who will empower them to be witnesses to the perfect life, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and that's exactly what they do. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, they become witnesses, they become heralders, they become gospelizers, telling the great news, the best news, the greatest news of all mankind about Jesus, his, his, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life, he died an atoning death, and he rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. It's not advice, it's good news. There's a huge difference between the two. He told them that the, the gospel will go out from the center, thank you, He told them that the gospel will go out to the center of the Jewish life in Jerusalem first. And that's where Acts chapter 2 with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, takes place. Acts chapter 2 in the center of in Jerusalem. Then from there, it will spread through Judea, the surrounding areas, into Samaria, the further, further away, into uh, all the parts of the world. So we see this unfolding work in, in the book of Acts. Jesus still working, still alive, Send it to the heaven, now working through his apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really called Acts of Jesus, not Acts of the Apostles, or even Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus continues to do. Jesus continues to heal. Jesus continues to redeem after his ascension. As the book unfolds, what we see is the gospel going out. King Jesus is announced. He has come he calls everyone to repent and believe the gospel. But now in chapter 15, what we are observing is the, the cultural dynamics, the, the cultural colliding that is about to take place. I think sometimes that we today are so entrenched in our own cultural that we sometimes are oblivious to some of the, the cultural nuances that are around us. It was not so in that day in the church. As followers of Jesus Christ, I believe it is very important to be students of the culture for the purpose of demonstrating and declaring the good news to that culture, to that people. 
as we study this cultural collide that is about to take place between Jew and Gentile, my hope in prayer is that we are able to look at it, take, draw some principles, draw some truths, and apply them in our own lives and in our own communities. Up to now, the gospel has been proclaimed and received by the Jewish people. In fact, God had told Adam way back in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelon, the first gospel, that the Savior would come and, and deliver mankind from the power of sin, from the power of death, and destroy the work of the devil. God continued that promise to Abram or Abraham. He called him out of his homeland, and, and God said, follow me and I'll show you a place where you will dwell. God made a covenant with Abraham, you remember. That included a piece of land, a, a promised lineage, and the presence of the Lord himself. He told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between you and I. I will bless your physical descendants, the Jews, and to your offsprings after you. I will give you a physical piece of property. I will bless you universally. I will bless you spiritually because the ultimate descendant, the ultimate offspring, the seed of Abraham, the ultimate one, will be Jesus Christ. God also promised Abraham's offspring that he will be the blessing, a blessing to all the families of the earth. That promise that he gave to Abraham was a foreshadow that spoke about the gospel, that the gospel will be a light to the Gentiles, to, to, to those who are not within that covenantal family of the Jews. As we've seen in the book of Acts, step by step, the Gentiles have been being, being brought into the church. But we have to remember particularly as we study Acts chapter 15, that as the Gentiles are becoming part of God's covenantal family, there were two very different cultures colliding. In many ways, it's been a slow process if you've been following, tracking with us through the book of Acts, but what takes place today was inevitable. How are these two different people Jews and Gentiles from every different culture who have very different ways of doing things supposed to get along in the body, in the church, in the family of God. Even though so many Jews, as we've seen throughout the books, have, have seen the hand of God, seen God working among the Gentiles, it was still a major struggle for them. Thousands of years the Jewish people prided themselves, whether good or bad, in being God's covenantal people. And now, that door of entering into that covenantal family of God, that, that salvation is blown wide open with very little regard to thousands of years of tradition and covenantal keeping. I, I, I want us to, to, to feel the weight of that. Two, the, the Jews never, never had table fellowship, had any communication or any kind of fellowship together with Gentiles. There was separation that you could, you know, cut with a knife. It was very clear. I want you to get your head around the magnitude of what is about to happen here in Acts chapter 15. We'll look at this chapter through five lenses, through five headings, okay? We're not going to cover all five today. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Last time uh, we looked at chapter 13, I asked the question, uh, what would you do? What would you do if, the, if, as we saw in Acts chapter 13, they're like, Paul, you got something to say? Tell us. And he stood up and preached the gospel. Would you do that? This question is, what do you need? What do you need? And we'll look on the, again, on the four headings. Here it is for you who like to take notes. Uh, the dilemma of the church, the dissension in the church, 
the deliberation by the church, the decision from the church, and then finally the delight of the church. And we'll look at, again, the last two. We'll do two and a half today and two and a half next week. Okay, that's where we're at. So, the dilemma of the church. Let's go back to chapter 14 if you have your Bibles open. Let's, let's look at the uh, context. You remember the gospel was preached to Antioch in Syria. It's on the Orontes River. God birthed this local church in Antioch. Antioch was full of the Gentiles, not, not only Gentiles who had some connection to Judaism, what the Bible calls God-fearers. They were polytheistic. They had multiple gods, different culture. They were worshiping all kinds of false gods with a totally different culture, had nothing to do with Jewish beliefs. And then by the end of chapter 11, this little church sent a monetary gift um, by the hands of Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem or in this case, up to Jerusalem because of the, the way Jerusalem's up on the hill. And when Barnabas and Paul get back to the church in Antioch, uh, Syria, um, so church's birth, they go down for relief into Jerusalem, and they go back up to Antioch, and when they get there, they're praying, and they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit says to them, listen, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work of which I have called them, and, and that's exactly what happens. All of a sudden, this missionary journey is birthed, and this, this mission center in Antioch is sending out Paul. He'll do it three times on three separate missionary journeys. I think I have a picture. Thank you to Nathan. Like, That's the best picture. I, why did I stop my own, man? I got, you know. All right, so here we are over here in Antioch, Seleucia. The red is the journey. The blue, we'll look in a minute, is when he goes back to strengthening the the disciples. So he starts out in Antioch after prayer and fasting, and um, they go to Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, Perga, in Pamphylia, which is Asia Minor. It's the southern part of uh, western um, part of Asia, modern-day Turkey. And then from there, they went to Antioch, Pisidia, which you could see that here. So here is Perga, Antioch, different Antioch, Presidia, and then they head to Lystra, Derby, Iconium. You see all that on the, on the, that's where they went. And it says in chapter 14 and chapter 13 that when they got to these cities, they would go immediately to the synagogues, right? They would go immediately to the Jews, practical reason and theological. Uh, that's where they gather. That's where the scriptures were read. That's, that's where Jesus comes from, the Jewish people. So he goes into the synagogues, and yet in chapter 14, verse 46, while they are on this missionary journey, it says that Paul and Barnabas, chapter 14, verse 46, spoke boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jew. But since you thrust it outside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, it says, and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then Paul moves on to Iconium, then to Lystra and Derby. Pastor Nathan did a great job last week, spoke about the ministry there. And now some Jews from Antioch and Iconium were following Paul and Barnabas, and they got to Lystra, and they got the people together, picked up some rocks to stone Paul, and then dragged them out of the city, it says, supposing, verse 19, supposing that he was dead. But we all know there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. <laughs> mostly dead is slightly alive. Come on. Paul gets up because he's not dead. He's mostly dead and not all the way dead. He's slightly alive. Dust the rocks off of him 
and, and, and retraces his steps. And the scripture says, look at verse 22. He retraces his steps, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the face and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's spoken of an apostle who just got beat up, stoned, and dragged out, left on the heap, dead. And he's telling us that, guess what? Many tribulations. So how many of us have been dragged out of cities for the gospel and busted upside the head and left for dead? None. Makes you really rethink tribulation, doesn't it? Just want to bring that up. Anyway, all right, so... Here he's going, he's the red mark, he's preaching the gospel, all these cities, says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And what he does is, which is, a, you know, think about it, it's, it's a great idea. I'm sure the Lord showed him. But he's like, all right, let's go back. We planted churches, we preached the gospel, people are getting saved, we're appointing elders. Let's go back and let's, let's talk, let's continue discipleship. Let's not leave them to themselves. Let's continue to work with the men and women who come to faith. And he goes back and he hits all the cities on the way back toward the place in which he started. Makes perfect sense. We read in verse 24, they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Uh, When they had spoken the word of Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there, they set sail to Antioch, where they had commanded, they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. Verse 27, and they arrived, the church got together, they declared all that God had done with them and how they opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So he's visiting the church that sent him. We do that today. We have global partners come and visit with us. We have hopefully the Dooleys come and visit with us. Uh, that we had the uh, Zerbies come and visit with us. They, they're, they're global partners. They're, they're doing gospelizing and gospel work like we should be doing here. They're doing it overseas. And then they come after a few years, take a furlough, and they come and share with us all that God was doing. That's exactly what happened. That's where they get it from. That's exactly what Paul did. Okay? And then right on cue, right on cue, the religious Bible-thumping Pharisees stand opposed to the work of God's grace. Religious people do not like to see people that are not like them, look like them, receive the outpouring of grace. Now, just in case you're new here and you think, hmm, did he just say religious people? Aren't you a religious pastor? You are a pastor, aren't you? When we here at King's Chapel make a comparison between religion and the gospel, we're making a comparison between uh, earning your salvation through your own works Versus receiving your salvation through the work of Christ. One's religion, one's the gospel. Religion says if I obey, if I obey God, he will then love me, forgive me, and receive me. The gospel says God loves, receives, and forgives me through Christ, and because of that, therefore, I will obey. Giant difference between the two. One is earning your salvation, the other one is receiving your salvation. The one is obeying because of salvation, the other one is obeying for salvation. Big difference between the two. One's a gift. One is something you try to earn. And that's what we see, verse 1. Some men came down, even though it's, it's north, it's kind of going up, but in that day Jerusalem was on a hill, so it's, they talk about going down. So some people come down, they're on their way to Antioch, where Paul had just finished his first missionary journey. Probably thousands of people came to faith, Gentiles receiving uh, salvation. And some people from Jerusalem show up And they were teaching, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Now this caused quite a stir. And by God's good providence, we have here in Scripture the outcome of that situation, the, the, the answer to those questions. There have been several church councils in the history of the church. Some good, good outcomes, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and some not so good. But this is Scripture. This council is Scripture. My Bible tells me that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So this church council is really important. It's infallible. It is, it is the Word of God. And the first question, they really have two questions at this council. One's theological nation, uh, one is a theological question. We'll deal with that today. It's the most important you know, question that we face. And that is, how can I get into the family of God? What is it do I need to know? How, how, do, I, how do I have my sins forgiven? How do I come into the family, uh, uh, the covenant of God's family? Do I need to be circumcised? Do I need to be a Jew first? Sort of like saying, do you need to be baptized in order to be saved? Very important. What must I do? The second question, which we'll look at next week, uh, is once I am a child of God, is there certain things in my life that I have to turn away from? That I've got to say no to? That I've got to walk away from? What do I have to leave behind? The council will deal with both those issues and they make it clear that salvation is a gift of grace. Yet it also tells the Gentiles, if you read the chapter, it tells the Gentile churches that there are things that you should not do anymore. And it almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? You're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ, and yet don't do this and don't do that. Well, which one is it? We'll come back next week and we'll talk about it. The first question is the utmost supreme paramount. What must I do to become a Christian? Is there anything legitimately that I can bring to the table for my salvation? What, what can I bring? Is there anything I need to add to simple faith in Christ? The same theological question that Paul dealt with in the book of Galatia, to the Galatian church in the book of Galatians. But here in Acts 15, according to some brothers, the gospel is not enough. It wasn't enough. One must become a Jew before he become a real Christian. In order to have table fellowship and to share in the Christian community, you must be a Jew first, particularly circumcision. If you go down to verse 5, other Mosaic legislations. I've got to say, before we judge, some of you are, you know, maybe you can't really relate to this type of problem. It's rather a natural question. I mean, think about it. The first Christians were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah who came from the Jewish people. God had only one covenantal people, the Jews. Christianity was seen as a messianic movement within Judaism. Jews has always demanded, always throughout history, demanded that any Gentile who wanted to come into the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, there were requirements. There was washings, there was baptisms, there was circumcision. For the men. There were certain rituals they had to do and perform. So why would that change? Simply because the Messiah has come. We've been doing it. Gentile, we've, we've allowed Gentiles into our covenant, but they have to do these certain things. So, okay, the Messiah is here, but they still have to do them. It's a rather natural question. I, you know, it's wrong for them to, 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 to say that that's what's needed, but you can try to understand what they were saying. In verse 24... 
Luke, the author of Acts, makes it clear that they did not come from Jerusalem to Antioch with this teaching with the permission or the authority of the apostles. I just want to throw that in there because that's important. Say, well, who sent them? Well, it says it wasn't James and Peter. They went to go check out what was going on in Antioch, and when they got there, they started teaching that on their own. Now, before we move on, I, I, I want you to understand, I, I want you to feel the weight of, of, of how important circumcision was to the Jews. God entered into a covenant with them. Just like he entered into a covenant with Noah. Do you remember? He gave him a, a, a sign. He made a promise that he will never destroy the, the earth by flood again. And God gave him that covenantal promise and he gave him a sign. And the sign was a rainbow. Abraham, unfortunately for him, got circumcision. I'm sure he wanted a rainbow, and God's like, no, I, I, I already used that one. Um, you get the knife, not a rainbow. Um, anyway, that's the word circumcision means to clip or to cut around. For Israel, though, it was a badge of citizenship. Circumcision was appointed by God, given by God, to be that special mark of, of his chosen people, an abiding sign that they are consecrated, separated, belong to him, they have to walk in purity and in his laws and in, his, in, in the customs that he has described for them. So it was not only a, a sign of their consecration to him, but it was his covenant with them. And since God's covenant had to do with Abraham's offspring, circumcision really does make sense. It's a fitting mark. So the teachers in Judea insisted that all new Gentiles who came to faith in Christ, in this Jewish Messiah, had to be circumcised and adopt and keep the customs of Moses and the law of Moses to be a Christian. They had to become full proselytes. That's, that's Gentiles converting to Judaism. Now, as we look at the law of God, I want to just remind you that the law many times have been taught and needs to be reminded because I, I, I talk to people and they, they mix things up. In God's law, in his legislation given to Moses, there is the civil law of God. Okay, there's the civil law. There was a theocracy. They were governed by God, and God gave them certain communicable laws that they are to live out in community. It, it, it was a, 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 they were to be governed by God. They didn't have a king, and he said, this is the way you will govern your people. Then there's God's ceremonial laws, regulations that are... That are, are, are very detailed about food and dress, other practices found in, in uh, Exodus and, and Deuteronomy. It was talking about things that were clean and unclean, what was acceptable, what was unacceptable. It was a constant reminder. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were to be a constant reminder to the people, to the Jewish people, that you can't just lolly walk into a holy God, into the presence of a, a holy, perfect, white-hot, morally, you know, perfect God. You just, we're sinners, we're dirty, we can't walk into that place. And it was a reminder, all the washings, all the sacrifices, the fact that there was a substitute dying in your place. There was bloodshed, there was guilt that was washed away. There was a, there was a you remember when we did the atonement series, the priest would lay hands on the goat and confess sins and that, that blemless list, that, that, that goat without blemish would take on our blemishes and we would take on his unblemished. Jesus is, the Bible says, the righteous for the unrighteous. So that ceremonial law was pointing to Christ. 
knowing that all those sacrifices could never really cleanse sin, the Bible says. It was only external regulations applying until Christ would come. The Bible says he cleanses us from all our sins. In other words, these ceremonial laws have not been so much rescinded. They've been fulfilled in Christ. It's Christ that makes us clean. It is Christ who takes our guilt. It is Christ who absorbs the wrath. It is Christ who died for our sins. So though it was understandable, it was a mistake for the Jews, what they were doing, is to to come to see that their, their cultural separation, the stuff that God had given them to show their separateness and consecration to them, it, it, it was a mistake for the Jews to come to see that cultural separation as spiritual separation and purity. Some teachers continue to believe and teach that this cultural change was necessary for every Christian. Okay? So you have God's civil law, you have ceremonial law. Let me just add, and we'll talk about this next week. You have God's moral law. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament does the moral law of God disappear. In fact, you read the letters of, of, of Paul, and he talks about, you know, not committing sin and, and, and not lying and not committing adultery. When they refer to cur, uh, circumstance, uh, circumcision here in the law of Moses, they're not thinking about the moral principles of the Old Testament, but the ceremonial regulations. And we're going to talk about the place of the law next week. Because the moral law of God is not binding for our salvation, but it's certainly for every Christian today to live. Because of their salvation. Huge, huge difference. So Jews are saying, listen, take on the ceremonial laws, be circumcised, follow certain regulations, because that's the way Gentiles become Christians. It did not go over well. The dissension, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. NIV, sharp dispute and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed then to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders without, about this question. Luke says, no small dissension. That's a strong word indicating how deep the division is. In some context, that Greek word is used for riots. I mean, I don't think there was fist thrown, but it was intense. That, that's what the Greek language is, very intense. So they're like, let's go to Jerusalem. We're not going to make a decision on this. We, you know, we're not buying it. We're not going there. Let's go down to see the apostles and, and the leaders in the Jerusalem church, and let's deal with this. And you think, dissension in the church. There's something new. <laughs> really, that's a shock, don't you think? Dissension? Do you mean everything wasn't roses in the first century? They, they actually got busy? Yeah, that's what it says. Great dissension. Now, there are some things that we must deal with. There, there are some things that must cause division. There are some things that cause great decision, uh, dis- dissension. There are some things that are worth fighting over. Now, there are some things that are not worth fighting over. And the problem that many of churches face, us as well, is the gray areas or, or, the, or you know, not majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. We argue and fight over non-essentials. That's a problem. What we teach here at King's Chapel is there's a difference between closed hand and open hand. You've heard me say this before. The closed hands are things that we hold tightly. We're not compromising on. We're contending for. Things like authority of Scripture, the virgin birth, the atonement of Jesus, all that he did on the cross, Jesus being fully God and fully man, his resurrection, his physical resurrection from the dead. That's a closed hand issue for us. Open hand, Bible translation, music styles, 
methods that we do. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. But the closed hand centers around the gospel. The truth of the person and the work of Jesus is something we will contend for. How does one get into the kingdom is really important. Non-negotiable. Jude 1.3, dear friends, Jude writes, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, the gospel, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for you, for all entrusted to the saints. Contend. The gospel is under attack. Do we really need Jesus? Do we really have to talk about sin and, and blood? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Can we embrace all religions, all perspectives, all sacred text? No. No. We must always contend for the gospel because there will always be those who seek to corrupt it, to seek to bring heresy, to seek to add to the truth and draw people away. Such an important issue that Peter, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, writes to the Galatian church who were, who were trying to add the law of God, add circumcision uh, to salvation, and he writes this. Some of you know this verse. But even if we, even if the apostles themselves or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach by grace through faith alone, let him be accursed. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, he writes again, let him be accursed. You know, what's important, I think, in our text, if you notice, is that those who taught, look at, look at the text, those who taught, it says that they were brothers belonging to the party of the Pharisees. Jesus had a lot to say about Pharisees in the gospel, I, I agree. But obviously some of the Pharisees, some of the religious uh, Pharisees in that day got saved, gave their life to Christ, were, had repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And there's no indication in the text, in all of chapter 15, that there was any malice. I mean, that there was any twisted kind of sidetracking malice going on in there, adding to the gospel. I think we could say they were somewhat devout men. I don't think they came with a pitchfork and a horns. They were, they were, they were devout. They were trying to, to guard the purity of the church. They were most likely very sincere, although sincerely wrong. Sincerity does not make truth. Someone can be very sincere, love you very much, care about you a whole lot. Doesn't change the truth. Paul doesn't say, you know what, let's just all get along. You know, why do we got to fight? Can't we just agree? You know, why, let, let, you got your verses, I got mine. You know, no, no, that's not the case when it's the gospel. So because of this great dissension, look at verse 3, they were sent on their way. They went to Phoenicia, Samaria, they had their way down, or up, again, it's, uh, altitude, Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles that brought great joy to the brothers. So they're going back, the 250-mile journey to this council, 250 miles. Some of you are like, I could do that in a day. Not on foot, you can't. But that's where they were, on foot. They're sharing, and, and, and these Gentiles are, 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 are hearing all that Paul is doing as he's going down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, and sharing all that God has done with the Gentiles, inviting them into the gospel. And there's great joy. There's great joy. Paul Hill, he's a um, commentator, he says, it could almost be described as a campaign trip since most of these congregations would likely be sympathetic with their viewpoint when Gentiles should not be burdened with circumcision and the Mosaic law. Verse 4, 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Then, as they're invited in, the problem comes to surface. The leaders of the movement, maybe the main players, I don't know, who agreed with these Gentiles, they agree that Gentiles need to become Jews first. Stand up, verse 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so not all were bad, Paul is a Pharisee, remember, rose up and said, it is necessary, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. I will give them this credit at least. I think we all can agree. At least they weren't sneaking around behind the apostles' back, teaching their false heresy. They're like, you know what? Bring it up. Bring it out. Let's, let's deal with it. We got all the leaders here. You got James, Paul, Peter. Like, you got big, heavy hitters. You know what I mean? The only one really missing is Jesus, but he's there by his spirit. And it's like, yo, let's get it on. Put it out there. I'll give him that credit. You know, I'll give him that credit. Again, let me point out, we're not talking about the moral aspects of the law, but the ritual performance needing to get into the family of God. Okay? And the question really is, how, how did we live together? What is going on is this colliding of thought, this collision of culture. And this happens when two cultures collide. Think for a minute, if you can, what if there was a mass turning, which I pray there is, there's a mass turning of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What kind of questions then would we face? Can he wear his kufi? Could he dress, use the colognes and perfumes that they use? Could he keep Ramadan? Could he fast and pray? That's what Ramadan's for. Fasting and praying to Jesus. What if it was to Jesus? What is repenting of sin to Jesus? What if he observed it not for the five pillars of Islamic, but the cultural condition that he grew up in, and he wants to keep Ramadan and worship Jesus, trust in Jesus, fast and pray to Jesus? What would we do? It's not that easy. It's not that simple. It's not like everything goes away. We, we have to be biblical. We have to think through these issues. That's what's going on here. This could happen anytime there's a multicultural gathering coming together. And what happens is a lot of times is this is the way we've always done it. The last words of a dying church, right? This is the way we've always done it. You need to look like me, a white Western New Yorker, in order to be right. That's why there's contending for the gospel and contextualizing the gospel. Understanding culture, looking to bridge that culture and, and, and the idiosyncrasies of that culture with the gospel. Not sinning, but contextualizing. Now, if you have churches that are always, always contending for the gospel. We're contending for the gospel. What you have? You have a bunch of pit bulls outside the house just roaming the lawn. Sorry, Bill Blake. I love your pit bull. Right? Barking all the time. And they become separatist shirts. They want nothing to do with anyone because we have the truth. Closed hand. Everything in a closed hand. Don't wear that. Don't do that. Not that music. You know, it's like everything in this closed hand. Always contending. But if you have only contextualizing, what you become is a, syncret, a church that does what everybody else does. Syncretizing. That's it. A syncretistic church has no real message. There's no repentance. Everything in the open hand. What would happen right here in our church if God sent a truckload of students 
Or what if God sent a whole massive amount of elderly? Or what if God sent to this church here today? Well, we have many in our community from India. Would we, would we, you can get that, I'll wait. (laughs) Would we deal with people differently? Would we be open, would we, would we, be open to the movement of the Spirit and to embrace their culture, not sinning, but embrace the cultural differences and be able to love them and, 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 and gospelize with them and have community with them? I hope so. I hope we would look at, you know what, we've been doing it this way, but you know what? We have a large amount of culture, uh, a large amount of people coming from this culture. God is obviously doing something. He's sending them to us. We need to love them right where they are. Regardless, single moms. I mean, just, you, you know, I'm not talking about one person. I'm talking about a, a group of people. Just a collision takes place. I hope by the grace of God. So you have the dilemma of the church, the, dis, the dissension in the church, and then finally we'll look at the deliberation of the church. Just a few minutes and then we'll close. Verse 6. The apostle and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, Peter says, the Gentiles, who he's an apostle to the Gentiles, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, verse 8, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts like us by faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you... He's talking to the Judaizers. He's talking to those who want circumcision. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All right, first thing I want you to notice is the transition going on. It's not simply the apostles that gathered, but it was the apostles and the elders. The apostles, the ones who were called of Christ, who were involved with the work of Christ, ministered with Christ, witnessed Jesus' ministry, his death and his resurrection. Remember, they will soon pass away and be home with Jesus. And God used the apostles to write scripture. They were inspired spokesmen to to recall, to, to be witnesses for Christ and be witnesses of his word. Acts 2 says that they all gathered together and devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were charged with unpacking the truth of what Christ said and of what Christ did. But that unique role dies with them. And here you see the pastors and elders, that's synonymous in Scripture, pastor elders, emerging as these successors to the apostolic mantle of leadership. Okay, not, not that they all of a sudden now become apostles in a sense of of declaring God's word in a unique way that the other apostles did, but they're called to lead and to guide and to care for the church. The apostles wrote scripture, now the elders will contend for it. They will teach it of what the scripture was written by the apostles. The leadership baton will be passed. The pastors and elders will work to preserve and promote and contend for the things that the apostles had wrote and taught. Second, I want you to notice that the church comes to an agreement. You will see that next week. They come to an agreement, which means somebody didn't get their way. I know that's obvious, but I'm going to say it. Because they gathered around the truth, and his name is Jesus and the gospel. We don't create unity. We join it. 
And when lives are centered around the gospel, when lives are centered around Christ, there's unity. Because Jesus is at the center. Jesus is at the heart. Okay? Unity is a byproduct of following Christ. Declaring the gospel. Living on mission. So as they gather, look what it says. It says that Peter's the first one to stand up. Peter stands up and Peter speaks. It'll be the last time Peter's in the book of Acts. Just about the, he just about goes totally off the chart and, and the transition to the apostle Paul. And he reminds them that he was an instrument used by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's talking about Cornelius in chapter 10. When he sees this vision and the sheet comes down and there's animals on it and Peter sees this vision and God says, kill and eat. He's like, no, it's unclean. And God says, no, kill and eat. And, he's, and God is showing him that in Christ there is not the clean and the unclean, that the Gentiles shall come in as well as the Jews. And right on cue, Cornelius shows up, the Gentile, the Italian cohort. The light bulb goes on, and Peter realizes finally that, you know what? The Gentiles receive the gift of the Spirit just like they did. And he recounts it in chapter 15, verse 8 and 9. Look what he says. God knows the heart. He bore witness by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Chapter 15, verse 9. He made no distinction between us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter said the same thing in, in Acts 10. We won't go there. When they, when they first came to faith in the Pentecost, that mini Pentecost, and the Spirit came upon the Gentiles. And he's like, look, they're receiving faith just like us. It was, it was a connection between the original Pentecost and that mini Pentecost that God reached the Jews, God reached the Gentiles. He says the same thing in chapter 11. He's telling the Jerusalem apostles, listen, this is what happened. He said, then the Holy Spirit came upon them. So I know now that God receives Gentiles just like he receives us. Peter's like, I saw it. I was there. I, I, I witnessed firsthand the opening of the doors to the gospel to the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, he cleansed them. Surely we saw the Holy Spirit descend. They spoke in tongues. Listen, God is doing the work of the gospel in their lives. We have no right to tell them they have to come our way. This new Christianity, we need to follow Christ. Peter's like, it took me a little while. I get it, you know. I denied the Lord three times. The Lord had to tell me three times to kill and eat because I I didn't do it the first time. And, And then, you know, the Lord had to tell me three times, feed my sheep. Peter was also the one in Galatians 2 who was confronted by Paul. You remember that story? Because Peter was hanging out with the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, until somebody from Judea came up. So this is an ongoing issue. And then all of a sudden, Peter saw people from Jerusalem coming up, and he stopped hanging out with the Gentiles. He wanted nothing to do with them anymore. And who confronted him? Remember Paul? Paul confronts him. He said, I confronted Peter, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. He said, certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles, but then he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews also were hypocrites. Even Barnabas was led astray. But I, Paul, saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you got saved the same way the Gentiles. It's not through the law. It's through faith in Christ. You know, when Peter stood up, I, I don't know this to be true. This ain't scripture. But here's Peter saying everything that Paul already told him. You know what I mean? Like, he's telling him, if you look at chapter 15, when he stands up, look what he says. He says, 
God who knows the heart, verse 8, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. He made no distinction. Therefore, why are you putting them to test? Why are you making them do something that you guys can't even do? That's exactly what Paul told them. Paul had to be smiling going, go ahead, Peter. You're learning. You're learning. You're seeing it. You're learning. You're growing. I mean, Peter's like, I need grace, right? I I hope it's not the law because I denied the Lord three times. I have fallen flat on my face. I don't need the law to make me right. I need grace. Can you say amen? You need grace. I'm a sinner. I need grace. I welcome God's grace, Peter says, and forgiveness. That's my only hope. Peter is, is, is speaking honestly, and we, if we receive salvation through grace, need to speak honestly too. We should not put yokes on people's back to expect them to jump through certain hoops and do certain things in order to receive the gospel and forgiveness of all their sins. Act a certain way. Do certain things. Peter makes it very clear. Then Paul stands up and then James. Basically, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Let me just close with a couple of things. Just let me, let me finish with some application. First thing I want you to know from this text is the way to Christ is not through Judaism. And you're like, yeah, no kidding. But you know what? It's necessary for me to say that. Every once in a while, I run into somebody who's so caught up in Judaism, is so caught up and captivated and enamored with the Old Testament and the Jewish people, they try to mimic and, 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 and uh, simulate into their ways. They think that if only I rehearse this Passover Seder and do Jewish things, then I'll be really spiritual. Now, we need to love, care, and respect the Jewish brothers and all the people in the Jewish people. There's no doubt about it. But there's nothing special, nothing more spiritual about being Jewish, doing Jewish things. Can we learn from the Jewish people? Can we look at the Old Testament? Can we see the rituals that point to Christ and learn? Absolutely, and we should. But let's not think that somehow doing Jewish things makes you like the real deal. There's no special virtue in being Jewish and no disadvantage for not being Jewish. God makes no distinction, Peter said. I'm not knocking them at all. But we all come the same way, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Read Galatians 3. Those who have faith are an offspring of Abraham. Very simple and very clear. You can debate about supporting Israel nationally, um, you know, politically. Go ahead. But theologically, we are all offsprings of Abraham, heirs to according to the promise. Just read Galatians. Very clear. Second. Let's not get caught up in our American Western style and method of worship and say, look, you've got to act like me and do like me in order to be a Christian. There are things that all cultures need to set aside. There are particular sins that we have that maybe they didn't have 100 years ago. Absolutely. There's a turning from sin generally and a turning to Jesus in salvation. I get that. But make sure that we're not like you have to look like me, act like me, worship like me, and all the things in order for you to be saved. It's about grace, which is the third and last thing. There is a salvation for all of us, a need for our sins to be washed. The good news, it's about grace. It's not about being certain ethnic ethnicity or moral doing. Doing your best is just not good enough. You know it, I know it in the depth of your hearts. The good news is there's nothing you can do to earn it, to work for it, There's no ritual that you need in order to be saved. It's all about grace. Now listen carefully as we close. I I want you to track with me. Every other religion gives us instructions on how to reach God. Every other religion tells us that God is up there and out there and that if you live as you ought, 
He will then love you and accept you. We must reach him to please him. We must reach him for him to love us. Every religion tells us how. Buddha, eightfold path. Islam, five pillars. Judaism, ten commandments. Other laws, Hinduism, to become one with the divine. Yoga, and the path of discipline, but not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlike all other religions that reach up to God, the coming of Christ to earth means that God has come close to us. Only Christianity says that we come through grace, not works, that God loves, forgives, and accepts us through Jesus' perfect record, not your moral deeds. And when you accept that gift, the free gift of salvation, then you could live for him as you ought. It's not the other way around. The call of the gospel is the call to grace. It is a simple truth that God accepts you and loves you on the basis, not the basis of your past, what you have done, how you perform, but on the basis of Christ's past, what he has done, all that he did on performed on the cross. It's that simple. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in doing well. It's not faith in faith. True faith, true faith is explicit, is specific content that you're trusting entirely upon Jesus Christ alone, the one who is predicted, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, taught and spoke with authority, was crucified on the Roman cross, was buried in the tomb, and three days later rose victorious over all your sin, death, and hell. And will it come again to restore and renew all of creation? Is that the Jesus you're trusting I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. Jesus loves you, will forgive you if you're willing to trust him. Turn from your way. Stop being your own savior, your own Lord, trying to justify your own life. It'll never work. You'll always fall up short. Jesus Christ is the king, reigning, ruling king who came to die for your sin and paid the debt you could never pay. Lived a life you will never live and died the debt you should have died. Death, you should have died. Do you know him? Do you trust him? It's by grace alone. And yes, when you turn from your sins and you trust him, you will live a new life. You will be empowered to live a life of obedience. There will be fruit. There will be a change. There will be works. Works are the byproduct of genuine faith. Evidence that God's spirit dwells within you. But your salvation is not about you. It's about all that Christ has done. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that Jesus came and fulfilled the law perfectly. He lived a righteous life. Everything he did, all that he said, motives of the heart were in perfect alignment of your holy standard. Lord, we are sinners and in great need of love and grace. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, the atoning sacrifice for all our sins. And Father, we pray that your spirit would make much of Christ in our hearts and in our lives, that we will trust him and him alone for our salvation. And Father, we pray, uh, particularly for those that are here, that your spirit would help them to see
how great, glorious, and loving Jesus is and be willing to lay down their lives and trust you and you alone. So Father, as we respond, we pray that we would make much of Jesus. Help us to see him in his glory and trust him alone for our salvation. In Jesus' precious name, amen.